Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have uh, Storm Cunningham from the Reconomics Institute. Uh, Storm, thank you for joining me today. Hey, Danielle. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, so tell me about your background. Whoa, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm about to turn 70 this year, so that could take a while. Uh, but let's uh, start with my focus on all of this uh, redevelopment, restoration, revitalization, regeneration, all, all this re stuff that uh, is my professional focus these days. Yeah. Um, you could say, in a way, it started with a scuba diving trip. Um, way, way back in the old days, I was a diver on a special forces, uh, you know, Green Beret team. And uh, the army taught me that you can actually be paid to do fun stuff. Um, <laughs> and uh, well, they tended to take the fun out of it. Um, <laughs> I think that's the job. <laughs> I, yeah. But ever, ever since then, I, I've been convinced that you got to, there got to be ways to uh, earn your living in ways that are really enjoyable and satisfying. And uh, so I stuck with the scuba diving. And in the 80s, a German scientist who was working in Jamaica on trying to restore their coral reefs, which were, had been 90% destroyed by that time, um, was looking for volunteers to come down, uh, you know, divers to help him uh, put his experiments on the ocean floor. So I went down there for a week and helped him out. And he showed me the places he had already restored. And it was just amazing that, you know, and I always consider coral reefs to be one of those things that's once, once it's destroyed, it's never coming back, you know, because they take tens of thousands of years to aggregate. And uh, he showed me places that had been total dead zones just six months earlier that were oh now swarming with life. And uh, so that's when it struck me that we don't have to be satisfied with just sustainable development. You know, you know, the world is in really sad shape right now. You know, we're losing hundreds of species every that month. Awesome. You know, uh, uh, the uh, uh, you know, cities economies are going downhill fast you know got all kinds of social problems right you know and you know so who wants to sustain this mess <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah so you know we, what we need now is to start undoing the damage we've done over the past few centuries and you know reconnecting and revitalizing and uh, you know restoring the natural and built and uh, socioeconomic environments that we've created 
I and I, I agree with you. And actually, your I um I was I mentioned in when we were setting the interview up that I was introduced to your book, The Restoration Economy, um, from John Leake, probably 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I um that was the first time I had realized that preservation and that work that we do was part of a bigger revitalization effort of in, in, including the you know restoring the brownfields and all of the other you know areas of the environment the environment so the built environment plus the natural environment so that was a really a big um like aha moment for me so thank you thank you for sharing sharing that so that i could i could have that insight yeah, there are all kinds of people who are part of the restoration economy that don't know it, you know, right. because they're just focused on their particular piece of it, which is, you know, valuable and satisfying. Uh, but it's also exciting to find out that it's part of an overall trend of regenerating the planet. Yes, yes. So, so why did you? I guess you kind of answered this, but if you have more to tell me about, feel free. Um, your, why did you decide to focus on the renewal, the social, the economic, and the natural resources? Well, I mean, it started with uh, the natural side. You know, that's my first love. Uh, most people think of me these days of an, as an urban regeneration mm-hmm. guy, but uh, right. really I kind of fell into that just because uh, in some ways, I mean, restoring an ecology is certainly complex and uh, challenging, um, but restoring, revitalizing cities and neighborhoods is even more complex. Oh, yeah. Uh, because it includes restoring the natural environment, but then you have to focus on infrastructure renewal and re- renewing old buildings and, you know, cleaning up brownfields, like you mentioned, and, right. you know, and then all the social issues, you know, the safety issues. Uh, yeah. You know, policing, all kinds of things that are destroying uh, neighborhoods these days. So it's vastly more complex. So that's where I tend to gravitate towards the complex. Yeah. And I could, yeah, there's multi layers. Not that there aren't multi layers in, in the ecology, but there's, there's many more layers. Plus, you throw people in, and people always right. make things more complicated. Yep. <laughs> So, so tell me, tell me about the the work that you do with the Reconomics Institute, uh, revitalization, and the Global Regeneration Team. Yeah, well, revitalization is the journal uh, I've been editing for the last uh, almost seven years now. It's got uh, some over eight thousand articles in it, all focused on some aspect of re. Because uh, it covers the natural environment, the built environment, socioeconomic environments, and it's global, and it covers all of the different disciplines, you know, from the, the di- designers, the architects and engineers, mm-hmm. to the planners, to the, you know, various technical experts, but also the elected officials, you know, the nonprofits, the citizens who all want to be involved in this in some way. So, it uh, it covers a lot, um, and uh, I've been. You, you can uh, take a look at that at uh, revitalization.org. And uh, the current issue is always free to, to everybody. Uh, okay. Subscriptions only needed if people want to access those uh, back articles. That, okay. um, so it's a publication of the Reconomics Institute, which I created to fill the most important single gap that was really holding places back from coming back to life. Uh, And that's the lack of a strategic process. I mean, if you talk to any business person who's who's, uh, responsible for reliably producing something, whether they're manufacturing cars or clothing or peanut butter or whatever it might be, 
they know that to do that, you have to have a process. Right. Uh, farmers know you have to have a process. If you want to turn seeds into a finished crop, <laughs> you know, there's a process to that. Yes. The only people who don't seem to understand uh, the importance of process are the people who run cities and regions <laughs> who are focused on, you know, who have the job of making a place more resilient or uh, revitalizing it in some way. Uh, there, it all turns into just this mess of projects you know, just haphazard projects, you know, stop, start, stop, start, right. uh, mostly it, reactive, you know, the right. elected officials yeah. are just reacting to what developers propose. Yeah. And there's and no real process say, to it. With the, with the elected officials, it's also, you know, depending on who's elected, if the project's mm -hmm. it's still important. <laughs> but it, it, it's yeah. the same, uh, same problem. Yeah. Not, it yeah. doesn't matter the, about the politics, whether no, they're conservative no, yeah, or but, progressive. Yeah, yeah, I agree. They both lack process. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, I mean, some of them are pursuing the wrong objectives in a bad way. In other words, other ones are pursuing the right objectives in a bad way. Right. <laughs> Either yeah. way. It, <laughs> You're you know. getting the same place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the uh, my most recent book, uh, Reconomics, uh, which came out last year, documents what I've discovered over the last quarter century to be the reliable process that helps places come back to life. And this is all invented on a local level by communities all over the world who knew intuitively there had to be a process to this, but right. nobody had ever really documented it. So, you know, they put it together, but they never really knew whether they had a complete process because they had no template to work from, you know, to take a look and see if there were any gaps in it. So that's what I put into my most recent book. And then, Everybody kept saying, well, you know, how do I hire people who know how to uh, get this community's revitalization or resilience initiative all put together, who understand this process right. well enough to teach it locally and to implement, help us implement it locally. So that's why I put together the Reconomics Institute and we actually certify people online to, are, uh, as revitalization and resilience facilitators. Now, are those facilitators, are they mostly like city planners or what, what is their background typically? They're all over the map is that, okay. uh, because it's not, you don't just, community shouldn't just have one. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, the, one of the key principles of re resilience is redundancy. You don't yeah. want to rely on just one bright right. person. Yeah. Uh, the more people in your community at all levels, whether they're just concerned citizens or leading a nonprofit or a business or a government agency or whatever it might be, the more of them who understand the process of bringing a place back to life, the more likely it's going to actually happen. Right. So, uh, yeah, the people who have been certified so far run the gamut from private consultants to engineers and designers to planners, uh, mayoral candidates who figure, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, one, one of the most common things you'll hear any mayoral candidate uh, promise is revitalization. I mean, they right. all promise. <laughs> yeah, they all <laughs> uh, the, say that. <laughs> yeah, the problem is that almost none of them have any qualifications to make such a promise because they have no idea how to make revitalization happen. That's very and, true. Uh, so now more candidates, not just mayors, but governors too, are realizing that they don't necessarily need to get certified themselves, but they at least need to have a few certified people on staff right. who know how and to make their them. promises right. happen. Yeah, that's very smart. So I am. Um, oh, did we talk about the global regenerate regeneration team? No, uh, okay. that's uh, 
we originally started this, uh, it was going to be kind of the ongoing training for our re-facilitators. Re That's okay. what we normally call these yeah. revitalization yeah. resilience facilitators. We normally just shorten it to re-facilitator. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are the people who put re after their name when they get certified. And uh, the uh, so we wanted to create a series of uh, monthly videos and weekly podcasts uh, to help these people stay up with the latest uh, trends and techniques and everything. And then we realized, well, heck, if we're going to have all these podcasts and videos available, why not just make them available to the general public? So right. everybody, especially students, I mean, we need more young people regenerating the planet. Yeah. So, and, you know, and they're oriented towards watching 20 minute videos and listening to hour long podcasts while they're at, at, while they're exercising. So instead of putting it on our website, we put it on the Patreon website Okay. which is used by, you know, a lot of podcasters and artists mm -hmm. um, and uh, makes for a very simple, accessible way for everybody to get it. So if you go to Patreon, uh, it's Patreon slash Reconomics, uh, or you can just search on the site for uh, Regeneration Team and it'll pop right up. Okay, very, yeah, I think that, I think that the, one really important thing that the internet has provided is that flow of information and allowing allowing it to be accessible to more people. And I think that right. is very important. So when I was on your website, I noticed that you had the uh, Restorative Career Symposium and I was curious about that. Um, and then I, as we were going back and forth, I think you said you do it at colleges, is that correct? Yeah, most of them okay. takes place at universities. Yeah. I've yeah. done it at University of Virginia and uh, University of Texas. And I mean, I did a two day workshop at Harvard uh, because it, it's really kind of a, a, almost a universal desire amongst the young people today is, you know, they've they've inherited a world that's in a really, really nasty condition. Right. And uh, the future is not looking so great, uh, you know, especially with cl the climate crisis. Right. So a lot of them if not directly, they at least want to indirectly be able to improve that situation. So uh, every time you know, one of these universities uh, starts putting up posters about one of these restorative careers symposia that I do, uh, the halls are always packed. Oh, I mean, that's it, it's great. always standing yeah. room only. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the trouble is that in most cases, uh, the students go back to their uh, <laughs> curricula and they look for degrees or diplomas or certifications or whatever uh, in these restorative and regenerative disciplines and it's really hard to find right you have to be creative and kind of kind of make your own path i would i would think yeah it's getting easier yeah. i mean if, again if you go to revitalization.org one of the pages we have in every issue is education oh and that's great you click on that and you'll see a whole list of uh, degree courses uh, either undergraduate or masters sometimes doctoral uh, that are directly related to regenerating the world in some way. Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, I think that there is a, a desire for people to have work that matters. And I think that, 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 that the restorative careers definitely, you know, gives you that you're, you, you can work, you can make money, but you're also, you know, doing something that's impacting more than just yourself. Right. So I, yeah. Uh, so uh Tell me, um, or explain to me, the concept of the global restoration economy. Well, it's really a trend. It's, um, it's, it's kind of inevitable, although it's taken people by surprise how quickly it's come on. But, you know, if, it's just common sense, really. If you take a growing population and put them in a finite space, 
uh, like we're, we're on a finite sized planet right. now. Uh, you know, when we started building civilizations, you know, five, six thousand years ago or twelve thousand, whichever marker you want to put in there. But, you know, organized agriculture really kicked off about, you know, five millennia ago in the uh, Fertile tr Crescent. And uh, at, it was at that time when we invented agriculture that we started creating permanent settlements. And when you do that, you start getting permanent buildings and permanent infrastructure. And uh, over time, what happens is your economy initially is based purely on new development, you know, right. on sprawling your city into the natural areas and chopping down forests to create farms. And then the city sprawls more and you pave over your farms with new right. city. And, <laughs> you know, so uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's how you grow a brand new civilization. But again, when you're in a finite place, uh, there are natural limits to that. Eventually, you're going to uh, realize that you just can't keep sprawling. You can't keep basing your economy on the extraction of non-renewable resources. Right. So if you want to keep your economy growing, you have to switch over from this new development or sprawl mode or this extractive, destructive mm -hmm. mode. Uh, over to a restorative mode. So you need to start basing your economic growth on revitalizing the communities you've already created and on restoring the natural resources that were damaged along the way. And the great news is that you can make just as much money restoring the planet as you can destroying it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That And, and yeah, there, there's, there's so much, and I, that was another concept that I, that I took away from reading the restoration economy was the amount of construction waste um, mm -hmm. that is generated. Um, and you know, that, and like the concrete is so hard on the planet all the sand that we have to have to extract from the, to, to make concrete. Like it's just, there's so many things that about, about building new buildings that is really hard on the planet. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I totally, from, from my perspective, I, that really makes a lot of sense to me, but we do, it's the, 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 the sprawl and, you know, people seem to be. Um, wanting to work against that, but then you know there there are the people who just want you know new and they don't want to deal with with anything different. <laughs> oh, a lot of them are architects. You know, they're yeah, they're kind of you know, uh, they're e ego driven. You know, they don't want to right. work on somebody else's design. They want to make make their own mark on the world. Yeah, I was that, involved. That's very true. I was involved in the early days of the U.S. Green Building Council when they were mm. creating the LEED certification right. system. And I was the, always the one in the back of the room jumping up and down saying, well, what about existing buildings? Right. And they were, had no interest in it. No. And, and I said, well, what about location? How much sense does it make to put a green building with solar panels on it 50 miles outside of town where people have to drive for an yeah, hour? Everybody to has to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they weren't interested in that either. It took almost 20 years for those sorts of things to get to embedded in, yeah. in lead. Yeah. Um, so uh, tell me, tell me about your your three books. Um, we kind of, I referenced the restoration economy a couple times, and then you have rewealth, and then the reconomics, re the path to resilient prosperity. Right. Yeah. So the first one uh, was originally going to be a book on sustainable development. Um, I started writing it in 1996, and uh, got about a year into it, and realized that the book was boring me. Uh, <laughs> that uh, so I decided to separate all of the research I had done into two piles, a boring pile and an exciting pile. <laughs> and uh, the smaller exciting pile, uh, I noticed everything in there started with re. Right. And uh, that's when I realized, whoa, 
you know, look at all this. I mean, we're, we've got projects here that are multi-billion dollar projects that are restoring natural systems like the Everglades. Uh, you, you've got uh, all of these uh, new restorative disciplines that are like brownfields. You know, when I yes. when I started writing the restoration economy in 1996, the EPA had only just created their brownfields program the year before. Oh my goodness! You know, so this is really you know fresh stuff that people hadn't heard about. And so I documented, I created kind of a taxonomy of the restoration economy, put it into eight categories, four of them on the natural side and four of them on the built side. So you could kind of look at that first book as being kind of the ingredients of revitalization, mm -hmm. the different kinds of projects you can do. Yeah. Um, but uh, what was really needed was even more was what was in the second book which was the recipe for those ingredients. How do you put together all of those different kinds of restoration, revitalization, redevelopment, you know, whatever, to create what people really want, which is more jobs, higher quality of life, you know, economic growth. Right. Uh, you know, so they needed a recipe for the ingredients. And that's what I put in the second book from McGraw-Hill in 2008 called Rewealth. And I had a bunch of case studies in there, uh, really dramatic stories like Chattanooga that went from the most desperate and filthy city in the United States to a global revitalization oh, poster child yeah. in a very short period of time. And uh, that's when I realized that, that that was the beginning of the awakening to process because they were the first city I've encountered to actually create a complete renewal process. And uh, so that became the primary focus of my third book, Reconomics, uh, which just came out last year, is, you know, here's, here's the, what you could call the minimum viable process. This, these are all the steps your community needs to have in order to reliably produce resilience or revitalization or both, you know, put them together and you get resilient prosperity. And uh, so you can add to the process, but you can't take away from it. Because a right. process with missing elements is not a process. Yeah. So the yeah, that's the minimum. Yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. And I was thinking too, you know, when you said like resilient um, economic, I think you said, did you say resilient economic development? Was that the phrase? Resilient prosperity. Prosperity. Yeah. Prosperity. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that um, like there there is there's a finite amount of land that we can develop, but there's always, you know, things, maintenance and things that need to be done on, on the infrastructure that we have. So that, that does, that does, I, to me, that makes it resilient. Yeah. And it's not yeah. just uh, the built land either, you know, agriculture. Uh, when the restoration economy came out, I had a chapter on restorative or what these days is mostly called regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the first books to even mention it. And, uh, you know, that, I, like I said, I started writing that in the mid nineties. And only in the last four or five years has regenerative agriculture really taken off. And uh, that's the process basically of bringing a farm back to life or a ranch, you know, after right. abuse by, you know, factory style farming, you know, that depletes the topsoil and kills the biome in the soil and wipes out the local native pollinators and right. destroys the watershed. And so re regenerative agriculture reverses all that. 
you know, with each passing year, you have more topsoil and better topsoil. With each passing year, your watershed is healthier and you've got more native pollinators. So you're not relying on these disease prone European honeybees like most people are. <laughs> right. And, uh, and the, the great thing about it is you can make more money at it. It's not right. that, not that regenerative agriculture produces bigger yields. In some cases, it's actually a slightly smaller yield. Uh, but what it does is greatly cut down on expenses because you're not plowing your fields anymore. You're not coating them with expensive pesticides and herbicides and f chemical fertilizers. Uh, and in some cases, you know, it's reduced farmers uh, expenses by two thirds, which means oh, that huge. even with a 10 percent reduction in their productivity, <laughs> their bottom line has tripled or quadrupled. Right. <laughs> That, I would think that that would make it attractive to, to them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and I think that that's so, so important. I feel like sometimes we as humans just in, in general have a very short um, memory. And because I was reading um, last year, um, the book, about, uh, it was called The Prairie Fires. It was the the book about Laurel Ingalls Wilder and that the family going West and mm -hmm. having all the problems and the dust bowls and everything. And I think right. they, they, they were ruining the land then too. And you know, oh, yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> we just go in these cycles. <laughs> so what, uh, what trends or challenges do you see in the, in the restoration economy? Um, it's, these days, it's mostly a matter of getting people out of this project mindset. You know, there's a huge organization called the Project Management Institute. It's got like 300,000 members worldwide. Um, everybody's focused on project management. And so few are focused on program management. Mm -hmm. And a program is when you put together multiple projects and coordinate them in a way to get synergies and efficiencies. And cities definitely uh, desperately need this programmatic process-oriented right. approach in order to more efficiently spend the limited amount of funding they have. And it's just desperately difficult <laughs> to get people out of this project uh, mindset. And it's mostly because, uh, well, it's two things. One, one is that most cities ha don't have anybody who's really dedicated to revitalizing the place. Like I right. said, they usually just sit around waiting for somebody else to propose something, usually a real <laughs> estate developer, and then react to it. Uh, so it's a very passive, you know, and it's like they're storekeepers waiting for somebody to walk through the door. <laughs> and um, so uh, the other problem is planning, mm -hmm. not planning per se, but plans. Right. Uh, what uh, there is kind of a huge scam going on in this country, um, not just this country, but uh, probably the worse in this country than anywhere else, in that elected leaders hate risk, uh, but they love the appearance of action. So <laughs> what they've discovered is that they can get really good publicity by commissioning a plan. You know, they, they'll commission a plan, whether it's from their own uh, staff or from uh, some outside planning firm. And all they have to do is allocate the money and uh, they get up in front of the press and say, look, we've got a new revitalization plan or comprehensive plan on the way. And, right. you know, it's a guaranteed win. It's positive press and there's no risk. All they have to do is write a check. <laughs> and then a year or so later, the plan arrives, another press uh, event and they hold the plan up, wave it around and say, here, now we've got a plan to revitalize the place. Still no risk. Right. Uh, problem comes with implementation. Uh, 
that's when all of a sudden, if you try to implement it and it doesn't work, you've got a failure on your records. Uh, so the plan just goes onto a shelf. And uh, five years later, the mayor gets up in front of the press and says, our plan needs to be reno uh, renewed and updated. Uh, so we're going to commission an updated plan. And this just goes on and on and on. And like I said, it's kind of a scam because the planning firms know it. Uh, right. In many cases, uh, these plans they're putting out are 80% boilerplate because uh, they know nobody's ever going to read it. Uh, I've, got, I've got a friend uh, who is an award-winning urban planner who joined the American Planning uh, Association in the last few years of his career before he retired. And uh, I met him in his office at the APA uh, a day or two before he uh, left and uh, was telling him about this new book, Reconomics, that uh, mm -hmm. I was just about to finish and asked him, bottom line, what, what, what's the situation in planning? And he said, uh, well, it's kind of like uh, General Eisenhower said, uh, planning is good, but plans are useless. Uh, <laughs> he said, my definition of a plan is a list of crap that nobody ever looks at. And, uh, you know, and that's from a top American Planning yeah. Association official. That's how bad the right. situation is. And the yeah. problem isn't just the money that's being wasted on plans that are ever implemented. The problem is that now people think something's happening, so right. nothing else happens. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's you know, very They've true. got the illusion yeah. that things are underway and nothing is underway. Yeah. The plan is the end unto itself. Yeah, and that that's very true. And I, I have seen I have seen those stacks of plans. So I, I completely understand what, what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, they do. And, and, and it, yeah, unless you implement it, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. Yep. So is there anything that you thought that you wanted to share that maybe I didn't think to ask you while we were while we were talking? Um. Well, the title of your podcast is Practical Preservation. Yes. Are, are your li listeners mostly interested in historic preservation? Typically, yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I haven't really mentioned uh, that a whole lot. I mean, we've got, uh, obviously, everybody knows about the excellent uh, Main Street program in, in yes. this country that tries to combine the uh, reuse and renovation of historic uh, structures with downtown revitalization. And they certainly do an excellent job on that. Um, the uh, downside of it uh, is they tend to have two limitations. Uh, one is that they tend to be primarily focused on downtown, right. although they, ha they have made some efforts, I think they call it Elm Street, yes. yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. to kind of get out into the inner ring suburbs. Uh, uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of progress on that lately. But um, uh, the other problem is that by being primarily focused on historic assets, they tend to pretty much overlook the entire natural environment. I mean, right. yeah, they'll make some efforts to do green renovations of these historic buildings, but um, by not focusing uh, or incorporating you know, watershed restoration, mm -hmm. uh, and to a large degree, you know, even surprisingly, there's not enough focus on brownfields, even though a lot of brownfields have historic buildings on them. Right. In many cases, the historic buildings themselves are brownfields. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, and infrastructure renewal, all these sorts of things, and they'll get involved in that in a little bit with downtown streetscaping. But, um, you know, there's so much, it could be so much more powerful if they had a more comprehensive process yeah. that actually renewed all 
of the socioeconomic and natural and, and built assets. Uh, you know, and it's there again, you know, when, when you're a historic preservationist, you tend to be focused on historic buildings and right. buildings by nature are projects. They're right. not programs. It's only at <laughs> that's, the neighborhood that's very true. or that's, community and that's level. Why, yeah, that, that's why all construction jobs are considered temporary because yeah, right. they're project based. Right. Um, but so actually, if more if more historic preservationists were to get certified as refacilitators, then they'd be in a great position to expand their practice. Yeah. Uh, because now they're not just helping the city make better use of its older buildings. Now they can actually help them create an ongoing, comprehensive revitalization and resilience program. That really makes sense to me. And and I've often, um, and we've, I've had several different podcast guests on to talk about the intersection of, you know, sustainability and preservation, because they, they do overlap, even though the two groups don't talk to each other very often. Yeah, I was actually, actually at the, ver the world's very first event that combined historic preservation and uh, sustainability. It happened right here in Washington, D.C. Well, yeah. at uh, Arlington Cemetery, strangely enough. <laughs> um, and uh, the, uh, they had a brand new building there, um, the uh, Women's Museum uh, for Women in Military Service. And they used the meeting room there. And the title of the uh, symposium was What's So Green About Historic Preservation? And it was the <laughs> first time that the two subjects had been formally brought together yes. and it sponsored a whole new trend. So I was very happy to be uh, able to witness the birth of that trend. Yes, yeah, I think it's very important. I think that they, the two, the two groups definitely have more in common than they probably realize and they just mm -hmm. need to communicate. <laughs> yep. So your, your work helps with that and, and I thank you for that. So um, do you have um, any offers for our listeners? I know you have your books. I didn't know if you have seminars or anything else going on. I, you mentioned your uh, the global regeneration uh, team that you can go on the-, the um... Right. Um, well, you can see everything I do at stormcunningham.com, okay. uh, which includes all the speaking and the books and all that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, but you, you mentioned offer. Um, it's not on the website right now, but- uh, it, there's an offer that's still active that I can tell you listeners about sure. um, on Reconomics.org, which is the Reconomics Institute. If somebody's interested in becoming a refacilitator, the normal tuition is $299 for the entire program. And uh, on the enrollment uh, form, there's a coupon code field. And we used to have a coupon code uh, to help people out during this whole COVID-19 economic right. crisis. And it's not on the website anymore, but the code is still active. So if people get in there fairly soon, uh, when you get to that, uh, the payment page and you see the coupon, just type in the word crisis. Crisis, okay. Yeah, and it'll knock $100 off your tuition. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. And how long is the program? Well, it's actually so, uh, done according to your own timetable. Okay. Um, there are like three books online. you need to read, okay. and the testing is all online. So uh, we've had some people who are in a real hurry who, got, who knocked it out in like three or four weeks. Uh, we've had other people who are still working on it uh, a year later. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're just whenever they have the time. Uh, they, okay. And a lot of those are students, you know, they're still working right. towards their degree. So they're not in a real big hurry to get certified because right. they can't use it until <laughs> they graduate. Yeah. 
Yes. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, and how can our office or how can our li listeners contact you? Uh, storm at Reconomics.org is my e email. And uh, the uh, phone number in Washington, D.C. is 202-684-6815. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time and, and you sharing your knowledge with, with me today. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks again thank for uh, having me on your program. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.